in dealing with the uh, the government as our primary client, there was an effort to make it client demand, but there was a lot of principles and things that World Bank came with that you could say was imposed. Some of it good, some of it not good. On the uh, ground level, I would say World Bank did not have much leverage or the ability to intervene. Occasionally did, but let's say there was an environmental negative uh, impact. And so either you have to do remedial or some kind of uh, additional investment or not go to the project. Hello and welcome to the Rethinking Development podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from development practitioners of all ages and affiliations around the world. Each week we aim to rethink ethical behavior and practices through the lived experiences of development practitioners. Our guest today is Akiko Madea. Akiko is a Japanese-Canadian health economist with a wide variety of experiences in the international development sector. She has held various technical and managerial positions at the World Bank, OECD, Asian Development Bank, UNICEF, and UNDP, and has been involved with policy analysis and investment programs on a wide range of topics. These include girls' literacy and immunization programs in low-income countries such as Yemen and Cambodia, to health insurance regulation and fiscal policy analysis in middle-income countries such as Egypt and Slovenia, and health workforce skills assessment for high-income OECD countries. However, over the years, Akiko has felt apprehension about the fragmented approach taken by international agencies in promoting development, segmented by sector specialists and riven by interagency rivalries and political conflicts. She feels that the goal of creating a more just and equitable society seems to be slipping through our fingers. At the same time, she believes that exciting new discoveries in science, technology, and human behavior are offering valuable insights into our emotional landscape and opening new opportunities for social development. Akigo will share her views with us on how we can strive beyond the social accountability paradigm and instead hone our collective faculties towards a social mindfulness approach. Akiko, maybe we can just begin by you telling us a bit about how you first started working in the international development sector and what you had hoped to achieve at that time. Great, thank you. Uh, my interest in development really began as a child because my father was a Japanese diplomat and I grew up uh, traveling and living in many countries around the world, uh, including your country, Safa, Iran, as well as Dominican Republic and Saudi Arabia. And uh, that has always created an interest in different ways in countries operate and how different cultures really uh, have uh, different ways of solving problems. Um, subsequently, I started my studies, university studies in science and biochemistry, which I enjoyed very much. But uh, halfway through my PhD program, I realized that uh, my studies in biochemistry was not really leading me to engage in more of these international um, development work. So I switched out and uh, entered into a study of political economy and then joined the United Nations and others to gain field experience and uh, hoping to dedicate my life in uh, development work. 
And exactly as you mentioned, the goal of a more equitable society engaging in um, in economic development activities, uh, we were all in the 1970s and 80s very optimistic about how these efforts would lead to a more just society. So that was the beginning in which I have skipped around different types of uh, disciplines, uh, which was very valuable, but I ended up uh, working for various international organizations. And uh, almost 30 years in that area, I have certainly learned a lot and have benefited. And for the first half, I felt uh, very uh, committed and satisfied with the work. I thought we were making an effort with the best intentions and with the best tools. Mm-hmm. But I would say the last 10 years is when I really, as I, as you mentioned in the intro, I really started to have serious doubts about the way things were being done. And not just in a, in a day-to-day way, there's always problems and there's no perf- perfect institution. So you deal with it on a day-to-day basis. But I felt a much deeper misgiving and others shared with me their concerns. And that is why I've decided to leave the World Bank and development organizations altogether to rethink, as you were saying, rethink the way we're doing things because just doing more is not going to solve the problem. In fact, we may actually be creating uh, more problems, more divisions, uh, sowing the seeds of destruction down the line. I felt quite alarmed about those prospects. Right. Some of those misgivings or some of those challenges, could you perhaps give us some examples about what you noticed or what you experienced that caused you to feel dismayed at the way things were happening or the way agencies were set up or the way that projects were run? I think uh, one of the more obvious discomforts I felt was the way the organizations that I worked in, as well as The rest of the society, including the governments and education system as a whole, was rapidly moving towards narrowing the focus of our studies into various disciplines and expertise. Now, in the 20th century, this moving movement towards a deeper understanding of narrow and narrow fields was seen to be uh, a natural progression because there was so much data, so much voluminous amount of information coming that a single person couldn't obviously know it all. And so it made sense at that time for individuals to go into those various fields with the assumption that all these different expertise would somehow come together into a more cohesive knowledge and wisdom. And that was my belief too when I started out and studied health economics. But um, as I worked over the decades, What I saw was more and more of a deeper segmentation, the silo effect. And this is something in the behavioral sciences, there is better understanding as we become committed to a certain group of people, professionals, let's say, then we do become emotionally and behavioral attached to that. And it becomes very difficult to see out of that. Mm -hmm. And that I saw happening across all the institutions as well as in the work we do. And this is what I meant was how this is harming the way we find solutions. So to give you a concrete example, the the World Bank has just come out with a human capital project, which is wonderful that they focus on human capital. But the way they've set it up is again, segmenting by topics, expertise into education, into health and survival, 
presumably with infrastructure and so forth. So again, the overarching statement, the goal is good, but the way you approach is back to separate groups coming together, but not really coming together. It's just a collection of solutions which we present to the policymakers. So I, as a health economist, I can present very deep analysis of health insurance, health financing, health workforce, and present it to the Minister of Finance. So optimizing for the health sector is the solution that the health team provided from the World Bank. Now, at the same time, we have other groups from the World Bank, from the education group, let's say, and, and uh, education skills group. So they're presenting their uh, investment strategy, let's say. So a minister of finance, for example, would get 17 different sector studies. What we didn't provide was the how do you do the trade-off? You know, it's not just a, a collection of spending in 17 different areas and then uh, somehow the budget is not enough. So something has to be cut. It was a very mechanistic way then in which the, the chopping happened. Now, the World Bank, we talk about you know, optimizing and looking at the trade-offs in a systematic way. Again, we looked at it mostly from the economic side, but it was a very dissatisfying process. Look at the, the poverty reduction strategy that the World Bank promoted for a number of years, especially under President Wolfenson, who was very much uh, committed to poverty reduction. Again, an excellent goal. But if you look at the actual poverty reduction strategy, again, you see this enormous matrices, matrix of the health group and the education solution and the cash transfers and then commercial business and banking. It is overwhelming and the policymakers usually couldn't handle it. So they ended up making usually political expedient solutions. This happened over and over again. Now, there was some development improvements in that the political economy became appreciated as an important element of decision-making. So a little bit of this political economy behavioral sciences were starting to creep into policy design, but it has not gone far enough. And what I see happening more and more now as these fragmentations occur in not just in the international organization, but is the same thing in the, the government side. And this is reinforced by the overall education system that is being promoted globally, which is by subject matters, you end up with a highly atomized and segmented society. And this is the model that in a way we've been exporting from the so-called industrialized developed country for the last, uh, since the post-war era uh, for 50 years. And the solution which is beginning to emerge has definitely not been the the priority of the existing international organizations, development organization, because these segmentations are so deeply rooted. And I do not see enough leadership within the development community because the funding agencies, the bilateral and multilateral donors themselves, want accountability within a short time frame, within those sectoral uh, measurable framework. So you see this driving sort of the, the vicious uh, circle in the driving force that is uh, not leading to solutions. So that's one of the major concerns I've had. And I realize that just having different sectors and agencies come together to talk is not going to be enough because the problems are 
much more deeply rooted in the way we, the modern culture is evolving. And so that is something that I've stepped back and wanted to reflect and get back to school and learn some more to understand how behavioral sciences and the new evidence that is emerging, as well as the use of technology, could possibly contribute to solving these complex problems. Right. So the fundamental structure or uh, system of agencies and organizations in terms of their specialization and segmentization and working in silos, it's something that is evident in the educational systems of many countries. And it's something that's hard to overcome by working within these organizations. So it's something that should be remedied by perhaps stepping out and thinking of completely alternative ways. Yes. And uh, when we think about social justice issues, people sometimes they uh, analyze issues in a very single issue format. But the complexities of everybody's lives, whether it's on an individual scale or a societal scale, is that there's really no single issue. There's so much intersectionality between the different challenges and the different social justice issues that people have to navigate on a daily basis, that it's hard to address those and unpack those and overcome those if all you're doing is relying on expert specialists to address very small parts of the problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you've captured it well, yeah. Would you say that this perspective is something that more and more people are beginning to think about and reflect on or not enough? I am encouraged that these concerns are definitely finding a lot of resonance even within the international organizations. Not all, but in many, which is encouraging. And I'll give a couple of examples down the line. But talking about stepping back, actually, these kinds of complex problems, and and we hear a lot in economics now and, and in development field, but that we have to move away from these linear mechanistic solutions to solving complex systems. There's a lot of talk, but I think there is not enough understanding of what we mean more precisely by that. And here, I must say that my original training in biochemistry and molecular biology was very helpful because in those sciences, you're dealing with complex organisms. You know, uh, a body is not just a, an autonomous, simple automaton with, you know, linear command. A body is very, very complex, a lot of feedback loops, and yet it works. It has more or less the capacity to deal with very, very complex biological as well as environmental problems. And it offers a very good insight into how we may be able to reframe those as a macro level development problems using the methods and knowledge approach that is very much more commonly used in biochemistry, biophysics, and uh, uh, the more modern biological sciences. Because the traditional uh, 19th century biology is about you know, phylogeny classification, which is similar to what economics is doing, is sort of the linear model. But the modern biology is very much informed by the complex systems analysis. And I must say that that approach has not really broken into the more standard development uh, project approach. The World Bank, uh, the model is, let's say, 
as you say, uh, a project in infrastructure where you have a clear technology. We build a dam or a power station, um, build roads. You, you have fairly clear goals and the engineering that goes into it, the mechanical engineering and other engineering works at that macro level and you put something in, something comes out, the throughput analysis. Uh, they don't look as much into the feedback mechanism, at least not the traditional infrastructure project. That That's the, the traditional project model. And you see all the log frames and all these project operations manuals, see these matrices. They're very much in that line, uh, in a way, the Newtonian mechanics. It's uh, You try to balance out inputs with throughputs, but not realizing that within that mechanism, it's a lot of complex things happening. You kind of treat it as a simple machine. So the the example in the economics fields is that most of 20th century was based on the notion of rational expectations. So you have a lot of data coming in and you try to interpret it uh, on the assumption that humans uh, would behave rationally. They would optimize you know, the efficiency, optimize their own gain. And let it happen. That's where Adam Smith said, you know, that the invisible hand will guide it, optimization. What Adam Smith didn't say and what he assumed is that this is embedded in a complex culture where social justice and all this already in place. So that if you have a good social justice system in a society, in a culture, then you can let individuals optimize their goals. But what he didn't realize is in many societies and systems outside of his Scotland, things don't work so well. And there isn't a sense of social justice or there is not an education system that promotes ethics. So if you don't have that, then you are going to have a very chaotic and adversarial system. So there was a lot of assumption about rational expectation in, built into the economics. So you build what looks like a complex statistical analysis, but basically they were relatively simple linear models. What the behavioral sciences, behavioral economics is bringing in is realization that human beings are not just points in or a ball, a shapeless ball, structureless ball in this large uh, macro system. In fact, human beings have complex reactions. So you push the person one way. It doesn't necessarily just go out the other way. A lot of things happen and you may come up with a completely unexpected way. So I think the behavioral science is introducing a better understanding of the complex interaction at the individual and at the social level of human beings. Now, the question is, yes, you got that human beings tend to be risk averse. They don't uh, look at long term risk very well. Fine. But how do you build that into a more analytic system? This is where complex system analysis, fractal and chaos theory, those things are more appropriate than a more simple linear analysis would do. So there is not enough, I think, education of the general public in understanding. You don't have to become a mathematician, but at least appreciating that the way that the world behaves, both physical and social, are based on complex systems. And some understand, better understanding of that would, I think, go a long ways towards the way in which the projects are designed. But when you have 99% of the people 
who are on the front lines and in the management structure of these organizations who have been trained for decades to see things in a linear way. It's a very big uh, leap to ask them to step back and think in complex solutions. So we have to find a new way of both continuously educating, but also explaining what this is beyond the mathematical models. We have to show the visualization and graphics to present the problem in a much more accessible way. This is where I think there's still a huge gap. But what I'm happy to see is that there's a lot more, as I said, of behavioral sciences coming in, but also more of these appropriate, more relevant models, mathematical models and other types of uh, systems analysis entering into the field. It's still in a very much an academic area, and it's not translated to a more accessible, more easily understood for those who may not be trained in mathematics. You don't, but you don't have to be. This sort of deeper thinking can be uh, achieved. Understanding can be achieved through other means. Uh, particularly, I mentioned visualization and graphics could help, and this is where technology could come and provide a much easier way to simulate what would happen in a complex system and the costs are much cheaper now to present those simulated models. I think that's one of the big missing parts, the big communication gap between those academicians and researchers who are beginning to present these and uh, those in the field who are trying to design the appropriate research to show this. And then the policymakers who are too busy and you know, you can't be presented with these mathematical gobbledygooks and don't understand. And in the end, you're de- dealing with more urgent problems. So somewhere there's a lot of disconnect, a lot of distractions. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to figure out how can we do a better job of connecting these different bits. So it's a process of unlearning the assumptions that we have or the, the ways that we commonly approach an issue or design a program and really think of a completely new new way of doing the work in a different way. But you mentioned these three groups in terms of academics and researchers, practitioners on the ground, and perhaps managers or policymakers. Um, do you believe, or in your experience, do these kind of three different groups of people communicate with each other enough? And what do you think are the barriers that prevent that? My answer is simply no, they don't. I find that there's really an alarming level of disconnect. It's been, uh, well, almost 30 years since I left my graduate school in biochemistry, where there was some really exciting research that promised to solve a lot of the medical problems. And that is happening. That I see on the biomedical side, enormous strides and better understanding. Also, enormous strides on neurosciences. And since I left the, the World Bank and started listening in a lot of great podcasts, I'm amazed how much I had missed out. So that that's what I'm saying is that on the one hand, there's some great research being done, but they have become more uh, segmented and perhaps, although there is a growing number of people bringing these sciences to other lay people, which is great. So that's improving. But generally, I'm just amazed in the last 30 years how much things have moved away from being connected more. And then 
on the side of the practitioners, whether they're researchers or myself working on projects, we are so overwhelmed. And, you know, increasingly more and more is demand. We have to multitask. So I would say last 10 years of the World Bank was so much multitasking and especially with the IT coming on board and designed not in a way that is biologically friendly. You know, so much data, so much things can be done, but it's designed without understanding of the human ability to absorb and manage those data. So everyone's feeling inundated, burnout. And when you multitask, you know that you actually don't do deeper thinking. Your thinking gets shallower. You become, your IQ actually goes down. And I felt that I had stopped be able to reflect deeply on any problem. Mm. I was getting stupider. So on the front line, you have people overwhelmed. The mission is doing their thing, but also isolated. And then the policymakers, again, facing all this um, problem with the political economy issues. And they themselves are overwhelmed with so much new data and so many new problems coming up that they uh, are unable to digest it. And also you find that the advisors are, again, fragmented. So instead of uh, coming to a more deeper, more sophisticated models and tools for policymaking, all we did in a way was just go and do a core dump and have a huge amount of data, undigestible. And so people will pick and choose. And uh, uh, at the same time, people feel discouraged. And so this is what I saw happening in not just in, in the field of development, but the same thing when I was at OECD for a couple of years. Um, I saw the uh, that the. OECD is a think tank for the the high 35 high income countries, and so they're supposed to do these analytics, which was was great. But you have academicians coming in. I saw a number of academicians who don't really have a feel for the policy side, and I saw a disconnect there. A lot of research, the policy people, they don't have the time to learn and try to guide. So again, a miscommunication. I mean, OECD would have been, a, and, and in some cases where there are good leadership, there are efforts to really tie in research, really cutting it research with policy, but it's not easy. It's bucking the trend. And in OECD, I clearly saw, I went there because I wanted to go beyond health and work on health and labor. So people working on labor and people working in the health sector, we need to work together. Well, I tried, but it was exceedingly difficult, not because people were against the idea. Everyone was just too busy with their own uh, assignments. So they had very little time to work on issues outside of their field of expertise. So you see the the repeated problem. So yes, practitioners, policymakers, uh, academics, we're also just as much in the silo. And it is not because people don't want to. It is structural. It is structurally built into the way that we do our work, that we do our learning. Yes, as you say, it's a it's a structural issue. But do you think this lack of time, this overload contributes to practitioners also not having the time or the mental space to reflect on the ethical issues related to the work that they do on a daily basis? Of course, of course. I mean, ethics is a huge part that's very much neglected. If you're under pressure, let's take the work I was doing on health insurance reform and the government wants and government X wants to provide 
a special higher coverage for the wealthier group, let's say the civil civil servants. And uh, you know that these people can afford better and the poor would need more. And then they say, well, we're, we're not a wealthy country. We don't have enough budget. And this is our priority. Now, I remember I, I could have done more digging, do analysis to show that the cost, the additional cost for extending basic coverage to the poor is well within the percentage limit of their their budget framework. But I was too busy, so I didn't have the time. I mean, it, just, it was just overwhelmed with another crisis somewhere else. Right. Some yeah. terrorist attack somewhere else. So because of that, no one followed up on it. They may not have done it anyway, but it was worth the effort. But these things dropped by, and it's accumulation of all these things that really amounted. And I would say most of us at the World Bank really believed in pushing for poverty reduction, for equity. And yet, you know, we get criticized for all the, the wrong, the structural reforms. I think in the 70s were bad, but there are other things that have been done that are better, well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. But all the structures, not just of international agencies, but they reflect the governance structure of all the governments in the post-war era, because this is the model we've all exported, right? There's a Ministry of Finance, there's a Ministry of Health, there's a Ministry of Education, right? All these things are segmented and budgets are done in a certain way. Guess what? It is a global uh, expansion and a model. And the education system, why is it that you have so many grades, children in same age, in a classroom with one teacher and 20, 30, 40 students, sitting in a row facing forward? Is that a natural way to learn? Of course not. And yet it was an efficient way in the 19th century Victorian England. And uh, somehow it's persisted and it's built into our culture, this tendency to, to be part of a hierarchy, to accede to hierarchical relationship and not to question, but to be an efficient uh, worker within that. We've been acculturated and we're exporting through education. Yes, girls' education is very important, but you realize that in the course of doing it, you're also exporting this very subject matter-oriented education, which has its good parts, but it's not adequate. And you may be undermining that country's important social capital, the, the connection with the family, with your brothers and sisters and cousins, and putting them in a separate classroom away from children of different ages, different generations. I mean, you see, there's a whole accumulation of things that are happening that we need to rethink. And what what I'm glad to see is that there are a number of countries as well as researchers that are questioning and moving forward and addressing, beginning to address these issues. Uh, That's why I'm feeling much more optimistic and excited that it's not just me. I think everyone is feeling it to some extent. And so I think there is a willingness, more openness than, let's say, 10, 20 years ago to listen to this kind of discussion and to be more open to trying out new ways. And there are a couple of new exciting things like in Finland, education in Finland, I think, is important or the OECD's efforts to um, develop a wellness index, well-being being the goal, not economic growth. And that is a good mission. I should mention that one thing that attracted me to OECD and made me want to work there and learn a bit is that OECD's mission statement 
is better policies for better lives. It's not better policies for economic growth or income redistribution. It says for better lives, keeping it fairly open. It is lives lived well, not just long or not just with wealth, but it is lives lived well. And so the Wellness Index tries to redefine our goals more in alignment with what are probably our truer values, which includes ethics and values of social justice, because the behavioral aspects of that is important. So I think that OECD's mission, which reflects, by the way, what the OECD governments generally are thinking, which is encouraging, is recognizing that the economic goals, the pursuit of economic goals, including poverty reduction, unfortunately, poverty reduction has become defined as reducing that income disparity or low income, when in fact, you know, well-being goes way beyond the income issues. And by using income as a proxy, in a way, once again, tunnel vision, Mm -hmm. we've made that the goal and forgotten about the human well-being, that OECD is coming back uh, and pushing the agenda for a better measurement, which is more in line with this more holistic view of human being in the way Amartya Sen and others are describing. But also it's got the human index, but also uh, there is the social human as an individual wellness, and then the social wellness index, because as a group, it's a different set of uh, measurements, and the environment, of course, and it also includes the economic, because it's not that you throw out the baby with the bathwater, you don't throw out economics because it's bad. No, it's useful. You still want to know whether what you're producing is done efficiently and well, but it's absolutely insufficient. You need the other indices. So I think OECD's wellness index um, starts to provide some of the more integrative measurement that will hopefully lead to incentives, uh, drive the others to work towards that. The other one I mentioned about Finland has moved They've uh, a couple of years ago made a major change to their secondary school curriculum for topic-based curriculum rather than subject-based curriculum. The difference being that the most of the topics, the subjects uh, that education receive are by uh, subjects like English or mathematics or geography and so forth. But the the topics, the term topics is used to present a complex problem, let's say a climate change problem or a civics problem with elections or some such thing about fairness within a social context. And then the the students are expected to work in teams and groups to try to find solutions. So it's not about using math or geography or uh, social studies. It's using all your knowledge. Also, people will come with different views, so you have to learn to argue and put up with conflicts. Some people get very upset, they get emotional. How do you deal with that? So it's a very holistic way of approaching complex problems. And I see a real hope in the future. If Finland is moving in that direction, think of the next generation of graduates coming out of that. These are graduates who will be more open to these more intersectoral analysis, but they're already trained in being able to cross those divides and, and be more aware, uh, also be familiar with more complex systems analysis. And that's starting from before universities and secondary school. In my country, Japan is also piloting these new curriculum. Uh, They haven't gone 
a major reform yet, but they're doing it on a pi- in pilot schools, so that they're moving in that direction. So I see these more systemic moves being important, but the, these are the the kinds of lessons that ought to be going much more quickly into the development field. I found that in OECD, there was a lot of discussion and engagement on that, and very important. Then I, when I moved back to the World Bank, there was very little discussion in this area. So although I must say that the World Bank's education team is really moving towards learning, not teaching, and so they have some of the good metrics and appreciation of that, but it's not uh, going outside of that education field. I think the development agencies have a, a long ways to go, and I hope they'll work more, not in silos, but also work with OECD countries to to share the lessons. Right. As you say, there are some encouraging examples, but it's it's taking a longer time for it to become more widespread. But in your experience, for example, in designing programs, how have you been able to navigate the, the challenge between offering expertise based on best practices and research, while at the same time uh, respecting and incorporating local or community-based ideas about what the best way to learn is or what the best way to approach a certain social issue is? I must say, in none of the agencies that I worked in, that includes UNDP, UNICEF, Asian Development Bank, and the World Bank, I don't think in any of them, there's been a very, in my experience, a good job. Okay, I'm not speaking for all the agencies. I'm just talking about my personal experience in all these agencies. I'll start with UNICEF, which has made community engagement and all that a priority, presumably. But my experience with UNICEF has been disappointing in that it has Again, my experience, okay, this is not condemning UNICEF as a whole, but my disappointment was in the way the immunization programs were developed and pushed. Uh, I worked in Yemen, where sadly things are just terrible right now, but I was there in the 80s and uh, when the country was separated north and south. And I was in the the south, the Soviet side, communist side, where they had uh, quite a good dedication towards literacy and immunization. So that was very good. But in order to reach, at that time, it was universal child immunization, 1990 goal that we were aiming for. So there was an effort to increase immunization. Now, of course, I'm not against immunization. We know how important that is. And it's really essential that children in Yemen get immunized. And the targets are important. Measurement is important. but What happened was, in order to get the immunization goal, there was so much resources and efforts put into that that it skewed the whole very limited, fragile health system towards immunization. And I think it undermined a lot of the other, like maternal health services and others, where the incentives went to immunization, a lot of the workers went in that direction. Now, you could say that's a short-term effort, and it's, it's fine as long as you get back to more regular system, but it was a pretty severe skewing to the point where the health systems approach was abandoned. You know, there was, if we one had looked towards a more longer term, slower solutions in which you work with the education group, for example, literacy, and explain the value of immunization 
it would have been more sustainable instead of having to do mass campaigns every five, 10 years, which is what they end up doing. But in other parts of the world, we see also the anti-vaxxers. There was a certain, I would say, an arrogance about saying, well, immunization, of course, scientific evidence is obvious. So we're all guilty of that. There's strong scientific evidence, and therefore you assume that everyone must therefore follow suit because evidence is there. Now, from behavioral sciences, we know that we're not necessarily motivated by scientific evidence. And we move where, you know, we emotionally, we feel safe and uh, we have to have trust. And so having skipped that, you know, doing evidence-based policy is not going to be enough. And this is where I think an institution like UNICEF, which does very, very important child survival, child safety issues, could do a better job and reflect on also the kinds of uh, negative impact that their campaigns and approaches could produce. I think a lot more deeper understanding of social behavior, of modeling, of opinion surveys, a lot more investment in that would help. So that was my not so good experience in UNICEF. And I'm not so sure there's a lot of talk, but I wonder how much they have moved since then on that. Uh, at the World Bank, there was always a talk about it must be client-oriented. You know, clients must, it must be demand-based, especially because World Bank is giving up credits and loans, uh, interest-free credits, which is very uh, low-cost financing. But it means that the governments have to persuade their parliaments, if they had a democratic system, otherwise the dictator, that it's worth taking out the loan. So clearly, we talked about demand-oriented, but there are two different um, clients where the World Bank is dealing with its main client, which is the government and usually the Ministry of Finance, as opposed to the clients, the population at large. And we had not figured out a way in which to do a more systematic analysis when these diverge. Many countries I worked in were not democratic. I worked under in Egypt for many, you know, 15 years. Uh, under Mubarak. So it was Mubarak and his team, what one can persuade them. And it's one thing to work towards persuading them. And I felt this was an important job to persuade them that health insurance coverage, especially including the poor, but not just the poor, the middle income is very important. That I felt was an important part of creating that demand. And in that, yes, we were being interventionist, but there was, at the board level, an agreement that this you know, poverty reduction and, and social equity and economic equity is a goal for the World Bank to which we can advocate without feeling that we are interfering on the sovereignty of the country. Now, this is not a trivial thing, because when you look, look at it, look at the United States. World Bank's headquarters is in Washington, D.C., if we had advocated that for the United States, we'd be kicked out for interfering in the, the sovereignty of the country. Definitely now under Trump, but before Obama, you know, this issue of uh, making universal health coverage a, a national policy would have been definitely seen as interference on sovereignty. So where do you make sure that you are aligning? This is where a deeper thinking of social justice and ethics we have to reflect on that and have the full support 
of that institution in going forward with it. So at least on poverty and economic uh, equity, there was at least nominally very strong support, and we advocated for that explicitly with the ministries of finance and health with, um, with the government of Mubarak. So that is where there wasn't such an appreciation on the importance of this by the government. But yes, we felt that it was correct to push and advocate for it, not impose, we cannot impose, but advocate for it. And I think that an institution like World Bank could play an important role. Now, at the project level, so when we do projects, uh, let's say more of a primary healthcare community health projects, the World Bank was required to do a lot of uh, community interviews, stakeholder analysis. In fact, it was a requirement to do stakeholder engagement in building projects. But here again, I think it was rather marginal. If you really thought of stakeholder engagement, I mean, that's less controversial as maybe in health, but let's say if you're building a road, a road construction or a major infrastructure, and uh, noise issues of what happens to the environment and to the people living in that vicinity. Uh, I think World Bank has explicitly made an effort uh, to to engage people, but it has often not ended up well because just talking to the stakeholders on the ground is not sufficient because there are other interest groups, the local politicians, the uh, the vendors, the suppliers, the, there are a whole group of people who influence the final decision. And as an outsider coming in, even if you have ground staff, it's not always possible to see and understand. In many cases, if you saw everything, you may say, no, this is, we have to stop the project because the project will then get siphoned off to this or it may cause something else. In a very complex system, I think in many cases we did not understand or could not understand or uh, uh, some combination of being manipulated and so forth. So what I'm trying to say is that in dealing with the uh, the government as our primary client, there was an effort to make it on client demand, but there was a lot of principles and things that World Bank came with that you could say was imposed. Some of it good, some of it not good. On the uh, ground level, I would say World Bank was not designed, given that you're already struggling at the central government level, World Bank did not have much leverage or the ability to intervene. Occasionally did, but let's say there was an environmental negative uh, impact. And so either you have to do remedial or some kind of uh, additional investment or not go to the project. Occasionally, I think World Bank has managed on the environment to do a better job, but it came at a cost. And so we were seen by the governments as very expensive, very condition-driven, and so and therefore imposing on our sovereignty, our freedom to act as we want. So that became a huge issue of you know, the World Bank imposing their views of environmental righteousness when we are a poor country and how come U.S. and others get away with it, but not us. Mm-hmm. And that is true. Um, that is how things have happened. Garbage uh, from Canada being sent to Philippines. But these are um, what goes on behind our backs. And the staff at the front line, thinking they're doing the best, don't always see all these games being played behind their backs. And so 
we did not win that. We were not in a position to win the trust of those people on the ground. Right. If you cannot build trust, then are you the right person? I think we're trying to do too many things and be good to everyone to, to put a good front. We need to be honest. If we cannot do that, don't pretend. Do your job well at one area, but then work through other teams. Again, you can't do it alone. Bring other players into it. Some efforts to bring in NGOs, but it, it has definitely not persisted in Jim Kim uh, presidency, and I don't think it will under Malpass presidency. But I think it's a very challenging proposition where our business model hasn't thought through these issues deeply enough. Mm-hmm. It is a complex problem. We tried to have a simplistic, pro- not simple, but I mean, it's still a relatively simplistic project model and say, well, you know, it's the client's responsibility. Well, sorry, it is, but it is much more than that. And it's beyond our control, so we can't deal with it. So, yes, but, it, you know, if we're in a leadership role, you've got to care about these complex problems. If not you, who else, right? So this is where I think the World Bank, for me, has failed to play that important platform and bringing out these complex issues and not running away from it and trying to paper it over in order to get projects going, but to be brave enough, brave enough to be upfront. But for that, you really need a strong leader who can persuade not just Americans, but Russians, Chinese, Brazilians, and others to say, let's get together. Mm-hmm. That kind of leadership is rare. And uh, I think World Bank uh, missed the opportunity to get such a leadership. We haven't had one. As you say, a big part of professional integrity is the ability to be honest, even in spite of interest groups and the political will of others, in order to really gain the trust of the people who you're trying to serve. Can you speak to us about the the concept of social accountability versus social mindfulness and your thoughts around those? The reason why I wanted to distinguish those two terms is that the social accountability is certainly very important. I I'm not downplaying its importance. But behind that concept is still the notion, it's important that there is a social contract. What is not measured is not accounted. So you definitely do have to measure and be accounted for. So you have to have those systems in place and have a sophisticated way of bringing to surface any problems along those. However, As with uh, what I mentioned, all the sectoral agencies and uh, specialization, the the fear I have is the construct of social accountability is to find a measurement and make the organizations accountable and have a governance structure. That's fine. But what is missing from that is to be the ability to step back and to have a much more holistic view of how all these different accountability measures are driving the system towards. Let's say you have social accountability on equity, which is fine. Let's say another one on well-being. But if the equity part in the selection, you're going to have some proxy selection of equity. Let's say, you know, this accountability shows good progress, but in doing so, it created an imbalance somewhere else. Let's say so much towards equity, like in Japan, where there then the the role of the um, outliers, of those who break the iconoclast, break the rules and go outside, they become suppressed. So much equity. So where do you allow for that? So that may be getting missed. 
you're not going to get that if you're only looking at the equity indicators. So what would probably be needed is to for all of us, not just to look at these different metric numbers, but the ability to use all of our senses, uh, our emotional senses, our visual, our artistic and other senses to create this sensitivity and mindfulness, not just as an individual, because there's a lot of literature on mindfulness in the West, which is focused on individual well-being, but uh, to extend that much more to a sense of social well-being. Is my community doing well? Is there something unhappy, toxic? Is there bullying going on behind the scenes? That you may do so, uh, social accountability uh, metrics because our society and human beings are complex. It's a constantly evolving and changing. So if you don't have the broader social mindfulness skills on, which gets into, again, back to education, not just about subjects of academia, but also importance of art, music, dance, drama, because theater, it's a human endeavor that creates a better understanding of how your projection of emotions resonate with others and it gets magnified when you perform in front of an audience because human beings are in a way social animals that resonate very much so that kind of awareness and the ability to sense and feel and notice not just the individual body language but the social signs of distrust of signs of uh, as i say disarray of a trauma and to be able to create more joy, you cannot do that unless you yourself practice it. How can you talk about creating trust where you don't understand what it is to live in a trusting society, the, the comfort and the love and the sense of safety you get from being in a, a community is something that you cannot just create by numbers. You have to have a broader sense. And that's what I meant by importance of educating and for all of us training ourselves to be more socially mindful not an easy thing i'm very bad at it i have to sort of step back because i have been in these bureaucratic institutions where you are in a very narrow sense narrow community even if i traveled a lot in many ways you're in a bubble so i'm having now to undo that and develop my sense of social mindfulness from scratch and i think all of us would benefit from being more, but we're, because we're too busy and making a living and running from one commuter train to another, right? Right. It, it requires a, a very different design that allows the space. I think people are willing and open. There's more willingness, but the design of the cities, the transport, the classrooms, the whole infrastructure is not yet conducive to that. And so this is where we all have to come together, the architects, the, the artists, and everyone to rethink uh, how we do our work on uh, rebuilding trust. And I just one word I have to add is, it's not just humans. You know, I'm very much an advocate for animal welfare and others. It's not just humans. We are part together with trees and, and other animals, human beings on on their own. We can become quite a toxic species. We need a balance of other other creatures around us to balance out the way we behave. And it's not just the mammals and those charismatic mammals. It's also the trees themselves have their lives. We need to reconnect with a balance and that social mindfulness, I would extend not just to humans, but to all uh, living 
things. That's something that is in a way nothing new. But a lot of people have been saying for a long time, but we need to revisit with a new set of eyes, with science opening up. And technology opens up a whole vast way of reconnecting, but it means also that it can amplify the toxic side of our behavior as we see happening. Technology is not the solution. It's another instrument. But now that it's in our hands, we really, really, really have to work on social mindfulness and become deeply, deeply engaged and rooted in that. Otherwise, we're creating so much toxicity that uh, uh, we will be having centuries of trauma down the line. That's what I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. So in terms of social mindfulness, the task at hand really is deeply engaging with our senses, our surrounding, our communities, really be able to speak from a place of engagement. Yes. Thank you so much for speaking with us today and sharing your experiences and your reflections. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Safa. So to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. To keep up with our weekly podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and Google podcast platforms. Rate and review our episodes, share it with friends, and follow us on Instagram, where our handle is at Rethinking Development. If you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask our future guests, please feel free to email them to us at rethinkingdevelopmentpodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next time. Until then, take care.